You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about your financial plans, are you diversified? After the year we had in 2022, it is a really good question. Is it time you rebalanced or made other adjustments? Help make sure your investing strategy is right for you. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. is this sense about the world of money and the world of finance that I'm not going to understand it. And it's not that interesting anyway. And so let me just back off from it and find somebody to listen to and trust. And the reality is you can't do that. One, it is really interesting. Two, it's not that complicated. (laughs) If you put your time into it and really try to understand these big issues, you will get it. Hey, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. While many of us would prefer to forget the pandemic years ever happened, COVID-19 and the choices we made as a society, of course, but also perhaps personally during that time, continue to have lingering effects. Unprecedented is a word that gets tossed around a lot in reference to the pandemic, and it's true. There were so many decisions our government made good and bad, that will continue to affect us for years to come. We know that women were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. One estimate shared broadly estimates that 2 million women left the workforce as the strains of being caregivers and working full-time became too much. Now, we have recouped some of those gains if not all of those gains by this point. But it is a time in our lives that we will never get back. The role that women took on as caregivers also made us much more vulnerable to contracting COVID. According to the WHO, women accounted for 72% of all COVID-19 cases among healthcare professionals in the U.S. So did the U.S. do a good job of protecting us? How are the policies that were put in place, like stimulus checks and extended unemployment, still affecting our wallets? 
joining me today to examine what happened, our failures, and hopefully what we can learn from them is Bethany McLean. She is the co-author of the number one new landmark expose, The Big Fail, what the pandemic revealed about who America protects and who it leaves behind. She wrote the book with Joe Nocera. Bethany's a journalist, a contributor to Vanity Fair, and this is her fifth book, Diving Into Seminal Moments in Our Country's History. Bethany, really good to see you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's lovely to be here. So this is your fifth book, Examining how we handled a crisis in America. It's your third with Joe. Why this topic now? Well, I think Joe and I have always chosen big moments in American history. And while the first two were big moments in American financial history, I'd argue that looking back, at least both of those big moments, the collapse of Enron and the global financial crisis, actually have more societal ramifications than they did financial ramifications. And of course, what happens in the economy is intimately connected to what happens in our society. You know, sometimes people will talk about the economy as if it's this thing that sits outside our society. But it's obviously not. They're all part and parcel of the same thing. And so when COVID came along, Joe and I immediately said, oh, this is going to have a huge financial impact and is might restructure how our economy works. But of course, because of that, it's also going to have a huge societal impact. And the societal impact in that case, I think, is a lot more obvious, right? Nobody would quibble with me on that one. So I guess sometimes I think about my work as this progression where I've been increasingly interested in the larger ramifications of of business gone right and business gone wrong. You make the case pretty starkly that this was a case of business gone wrong, that the response to the pandemic in America was botched. In the book, you write, despite its tremendous resources, America did not fare well during the pandemic. That said, and contrary to many, it could not have done better. I, I think a lot of people, including me, say, hey, you know, wait a minute, there is a lot we could have done better, including preventing hundreds of thousands of deaths. So why do you believe that's where it shook out? Because I think the pandemic, just as it affected people with pre-existing conditions, it revealed a lot of pre-existing conditions in America. And I think those pre-existing conditions were why the pandemic hit America particularly hard. And one of those is our incredibly flawed healthcare system that left a lot of people without access to health care in the run-up to the pandemic, and therefore meant that when this disease came along, which really targeted people who hadn't had great access to health care in the past, that it was going to hit them harder. I'm not sure there's anything anybody could have done to have fixed that if the fix hadn't been in for decades before that. It was in some ways the result of this very two-tiered healthcare system and this very two-tiered economic system that we have. Another part of the pandemic that contributed to the spread of infections was the inability to get PPE. And that was the result of America having outsourced so many critical parts of our infrastructure to other countries in the name of bottom line profits without any regard for how there might be a trade-off between increased profits and decreased resiliency. In other words, you might need to sacrifice some 
part of the bottom line in order to build a little more resiliency into your system. And we all realized in the pandemic in multiple ways how fragile global supply chains are when they become even a little bit stressed or a lot stressed. And so I would love the magical thinking that says if we had just had a different president, everything would have been different and America would have been fine and we would have come through this as unscathed as the wealthiest country in the world should. But when you see the stark statistic that the number of deaths under the Biden administration, the first year of the Biden administration, were actually higher, it's hard to believe that. And of course, the two periods aren't directly comparable. But nonetheless, if this were easily fixable, then people would have stopped dying. And so I think magical thinking is really dangerous, both because it's unfair on some level, but also because it prevents you from looking in the mirror and saying, okay, what were the real problems here? You start the book with the response to an inflammatory article that was written by Brett Stevens of the New York Times titled, The Mask Mandates Did Nothing. Will Any Lessons Be Learned? I mean, we walked around with masks for months. We social distanced. We locked down. We stayed home. Did any of these things work at all? Well, I think we don't know, and we haven't been willing to look at it. And this goes to a deeper issue that we tried to highlight in the book, which is the ways in which the pandemic played into and exacerbated our existing ideological divides. So if you think about it, being pro-mask or being pro-lockdown why should that have anything to do with what your politics are, right? Why is one thing connected to the other? But yet there became this incredible oversimplification in which if you were a good Democrat who cared about people's lives, then you embraced lockdowns and wearing masks. And if you were a Republican who didn't care about people's lives, then you said, screw the masks and screw the lockdowns. And in reality, I think it's possible to question masks, question lockdowns, and still be a Democrat. These things don't go together. It's a little bit like saying, okay, I believe in this treatment for cancer. Therefore, that reflects my political affiliation. Why should one thing have anything to do with the other? So we began the book with this inflammatory article just to point out that the response to it wasn't, hmm, interesting. Let's look at this study and think about it and see what works, what doesn't work, what we can learn from it. It was just wild anger with people saying, of course masks worked. Just to go back to that, the question the study raised, does a mask mandate work? And the issue of whether a mask mandate works for a society can be different than whether a mask worn properly, a good quality mask worn properly protects an individual. Those are two different questions. We all saw people with mask mandates when mask mandates were in effect with the mask hanging down partway over their nose or the rules on airplanes that you could take them off in order to eat your food or in restaurants. A lot of it was nonsensical, right? So right. that plays into this. But so the ultimate answer is we don't know. And I think the same is true to some extent about lockdowns. They, they were and have become a matter of faith, a way of saying this was the right thing to do. And of course, this worked. But it's too disruptive to society and has had too many costs, as we see now in what's happened to particularly underprivileged children with education, for us just to be able to shrug our shoulders and say it was the right thing to do. We need to look at it. We need to look at that. And we need to look at what the spiraling effects of the pandemic have done to the different economic groups in this country. I, I want to get into the subtitle of the book, the Who America Leaves Behind part. You mentioned that the pandemic showed us that people who don't have good health care get 
left behind. But you also talk about the pandemic having an outsized effect on small business owners, especially small businesses owned by women and minorities. Every day now, I seem to read an article in the newspaper about how our fattened savings accounts with all that stimulus money have pretty much evaporated. So where did you come out on how economically the pandemic was handled with stimulus, with PPP, with all those promises that were made to different groups of people? So I think we tried. And it is a stark difference from the global financial crisis where big firms were bailed out and people were left to mostly fend for themselves. And so I think the fact that the government recognized the need for fiscal stimulus and not just monetary stimulus, in other words, they didn't just leave this up to the Federal Reserve and say, cut interest rates and boost asset prices, and that's going to have a trickle-down effect, which was effectively the response in the wake of the global financial crisis. This time, we did put money to it. There were PPP loans available for small businesses. But I think when you look at it proportionally, the aid that big business got was so much greater. Once the Federal Reserve chopped interest rates to near zero, even the most heavily indebted, tottering big business was able to raise money in the capital markets. And the results of what the Federal Reserve did in the spring of 2020 made the rich a lot richer because it's the well-off in our society who benefit from rising asset prices because it's the well-off in our society who own most assets. And so the PPP loans were doled out in a pretty reckless way. And there was an awful lot of fraud there. And a lot of businesses who needed PPP loans didn't get them or they weren't structured appropriately for those businesses, particularly restaurants. We really left restaurants to flail and fend for themselves. There was some money, but not a lot and not in any really targeted way. And when you look at restaurants as an engine of job growth in the place where most people get their first-time job and an employer of so many single women and such an incredibly important part of the fabric of our neighborhoods, and you think, why could couldn't we do a better job in saving that business that was the most affected by lockdowns? And then, of course, as the pandemic wore on and supply chains became an issue, big business could get the supplies they needed because that's the way it works. It's a question of scale. And small businesses couldn't get their supplies at any kind of reasonable price. So it just exacerbated this trend that has been going on in America for decades where we talk so much about how we care about small business. And then when push comes to shove, it appears that we favor big business and big banks over small business and small banks. And it just, it makes no sense. You know the data better than I do that it's small business that provides most jobs that leads us out of a recession. It's something we need to cherish. So I worried a lot about that. And the same when it comes to people, we've all seen the data from this Federal Reserve study that the median American wealth went up 37% and isn't this great. And, you know, everybody did so well coming out of this. But Of course, that's a median number, right? It doesn't reflect what happened on the tails. And the tails show that the rich got a lot richer and the really poor did not do so well. And it didn't lead to any kind of structural change in our society. It was like a one-time infusion of sugar. It wasn't a recognition that, oh, there's a fundamental problem here. And so what I worry is that after the one-time infusion of sugar, we go back to where we were. I want to talk about where we are now. And I want to talk about where we go from here, touching on things like homeownership and interest rates and 
the job market that may or may not be better or worse than the numbers make it out to be. But before we do that, we're going to take a very quick break. And before I go to break, I just want to remind my listeners that you guys should all be also listening to our new podcast. It's called How She Does It, hosted by Karen Feinerman. The recent episode with Danielle Weisberg of The Skim was fantastic. Danielle dished all about the evolution of The Skim, how it went from this small daily newsletter to the place millennial women and boomer women, by the way, turn for a breakdown of today's most important issues. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you take a look at your financial plans, are you diversified the way you want to be? And when is the last time you rebalanced your portfolio or made sure you're invested in the assets and allocation appropriate for you? Look, we all need to make tweaks and adjustments to our financial lives, sometimes small ones, sometimes big ones. Thankfully, Edelman Financial Engines can help, no matter what change your money might need most. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup. We are back with Bethany McLean, author of The Big Fail. So, Bethany, let's talk about where we are now. As you look at the economy, all the headlines, the markets, where do you put us? How do you feel like we are standing up? So one of the things that I think our book revealed to me is how fallible experts are. You obviously know that well, but I would just love to offer that as cautionary advice to all of your listeners. Just because a prominent economist says it so, just because somebody from the Federal Reserve says it so, doesn't mean that you can look past what you see. And so part of what's going on now is we have this war of experts where lots of people are out there saying this is where interest rates are headed or this is where the economy is headed. You know, the ultimate truth is nobody knows. <laughs> and that on that list of nobody knows for sure includes me. I worry that these fundamental structural problems haven't been fixed. And what I mean by that is that, yes, the less well-off people did well thanks to stimulus checks. But when inflation hit, because the Federal Reserve failed to see it coming. It was those very people for whom inflation took the biggest bite out of their paycheck and may continue to do so. The reality is we don't know if the Fed has inflation under control. We have this different economy coming out of the pandemic that people haven't figured out yet. And it's still a little bit of a mystery as to why inflation never materialized in the years before the pandemic, after the financial crisis. Many pundits expected that it would, and it didn't. And now suddenly here we are. And so I think the idea that anybody knows where we're going to be in a couple of years is flawed. But the other structural issue that I worry about, I was so stunned to see this, despite the fact that big companies talked up everything they could do for their essential workers, their frontline employees who are out in stores during the pandemic. The reality is that most of the gains in share prices, most of the rewards went to shareholders, went to owners of capital, and frontline workers didn't do that well. They didn't get that much of it. And I was stunned by this study 
study I found that some of the biggest recipients of government aid are people who have full-time jobs at some of our biggest companies, but they can't make enough from those full-time jobs to make ends meet. I think that's a really big structural problem in our economy. You need wages to reflect the work that people put in. Let's put aside anything else about your beliefs about equality and what we need to do with with tax rates. I think we can all agree that if somebody works a full-time job, they should be able to take home enough money to make ends meet. Whether we technically tip into a recession or not, I don't know how we don't head into something that looks less wonderful (laughs) than it might now with employment. And if jobs that continue to be available are those at the low end of the spectrum, and that low end of the spectrum doesn't permit people to live decently, what does that do? Are you hopeful seeing what's been going on with the auto workers and the other strikes and and the small rise in unionization that we've had that could change in the next decade or so? I hope so. I do a podcast with the University of Chicago Economist, and we've had a lot of people on to talk about the decline in unions, the renewed interest in unions. And I think private sector unions are a good thing. And I hope that that they can create a force that pushes back against this kind of ongoing stretching of workers, for lack of a better way of putting it. I think there's a parallel to how fragile our global supply chains became in the pandemic and how fragile our workforce became. So when you see some of the rage and now some of the difficulties in retaining people like teachers and nurses. Well, of course, they felt stretched before the pandemic even hit, asked to do more and more for not that much money with just-in-time staffing for nurses. And so when the pandemic hit, they were done before it hit, (laughs) and they're close to done before it hit. And the pandemic, just as it snapped our supply chains, it snapped our supply of workers in some places. So I hope that If companies aren't capable of rethinking how to treat workers, that workers themselves, that we're able to create a little bit more of a balance of power. Some of that balance of power will have to come through government intervention. We pulled a recent study from Pew that found that public trust in the federal government is at near record lows. Fewer than two in 10 Americans say they trust the government in Washington to do the right thing. I wonder how we'll get trust back in the government to do the right thing, or if we just don't believe that the government ever will do the right thing again, which is not really a question, but it's so many pieces of information swimming about at the same time We're clearly looking for leadership that we feel can help us get to a better place. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a very multifaceted issue, but I I think in many ways the lack of trust in government has been earned. And in the end, there's really no such thing as a free market, right? We in America have embraced this notion that the free market should be applied to every aspect of life and the free market fix is the right mechanism for everything. But in the end, when you think even about the freest of markets, there's bankruptcy court, there's the existence of a limited liability corporation, there's all these rules that are established that then provide the groundwork for how 
how the thing works. <laughs> and when I think broadly about various aspects of our economic system, it does seem to me that government has failed to set the right rules, and government has to set rules. Whatever your stance on how much government involvement there is, government has to set the ground rules. So when you look at the healthcare system, for instance, and government allows a private equity firm to buy hospitals, and private equity firms, by law, their investors have to come first. They have a fiduciary duty to those investors, so they have to figure out any way they can to make money from the hospital system. Is that the way you want our healthcare system to function? Is that the right approach for a piece of critical infrastructure that needs to make sure Americans are healthy? Or, or is it not? And if it's not, then it's up to the government to set the ground rules for that. It's not the fault of private equity coming into the healthcare system. It's the fault of government for not setting the right rules. And then, of course, there's the global financial crisis, which I think it's most lasting legacy again. It's not financial. It's societal. It's the way in which the government's response to it stripped away faith in capitalism and stripped away faith in government's ability to do the right thing. I think that's really problematic. On a broader note, I think one thing that leaders across the board have to come to terms with is that in a world awash with information, you have to give people the whole truth. In public health, there's you know, long been a kind of a belief, you know, lie to people, exaggerate about what a mask can do, exaggerate about what staying home can do, because that will get more people to do it if they're sure that it's good. In a world awash with information, when the information comes out that maybe there's some nuance around that, maybe we're not quite sure, then you create distrust. And so you can't afford, even if the conditioning is don't offer nuance, give people big blanket statements, you just can't do that anymore because you decrease faith when people find out that what you said was so just isn't so. So I think overall, leaders have to come up with a new way of handling the world because these big blanket statements that aren't true just destroy faith. Some of the lack of faith in government is coming with increased faith in business because we're all being taught that business can get it right somehow. But the reality is some of government's dysfunction is because of business lobbying. So the whole thing is all caught up together. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what you are saying about the flow of information is just it's people have to remember big blanket statements worked when everybody got their news from the morning paper. Yes. But now that you are on your phone 24 seven and you can pull up countless sources of news with varying perspectives, it doesn't work anymore. People are going to get the nuance whether you give it to them or not. So you're better off just explaining the underlying story as you understand it. We are, at our heart, a personal finance podcast. We talk about big issues, the economy and the world, because they matter to our wallets and they have a big impact on our wallets. But in the end, I always come back to the fact that I can't control the economy. I can control my own personal economy to some degree. Having now written about the global financial crisis and about Enron and now about the pandemic, what do you think everyday people should do with their money in order to best ensure their chances of a stable, solid future for themselves and for their families? That is a really interesting question because it does come back to your question about trust. Because I think the collapse of Enron showed everybody that this very simple thing we'd all been told to do 
have your 401k. And there were some warnings before Enron about maybe don't have it all in your company's stock. But most of us believed in the place where we worked. And Enron showed the fallacy of that, that the place where you work can all of a sudden betray you because it turns out it's not what it's cracked up to be. And then when it collapses, you're left with nothing. And the global financial crisis showed the fallacy in some ways of homeownership, right? If you just do the right thing and scrape and save and get a mortgage, and no matter what that is, then you'll own your home. And that's the American thing to do. And that's stability for the future. And I think we've seen some of those same questions about student loans, right? Do anything you can, pay any amount you can to get an education. Well, wait, there are all these unscrupulous lenders out there and these unscrupulous colleges that will load you up with debt that you can never pay back. So I think the most important thing to do is to listen to podcasts like yours. Be really, really aware because a lot of what you're told isn't true. And so you have to know for yourself and you have to protect yourself. And there is this, I think, unfortunately, particularly among women, there is this sense about the world of money and the world of finance that I'm not going to understand it and I'm not going to get this and it's not that interesting anyway. And so let me just back off from it and find somebody to listen to and trust. And the reality is you can't do that. One, it is really interesting. Two, it's not that complicated. (laughs) If you put your time into it and really try to understand these big issues, you will get it. I think that's one thing is just you have to understand it and you can't just have blind faith in these precepts that are put forward because they've been proven wrong. The other thing which I'm sure you talk a lot about, and it's just so obvious and basic, but you know, we have become particularly at the lower end of the income distribution and even in the middle class, a society of debtors, and we're encouraged to take on debt by so many of the ways the financial system is structured. And we're encouraged to do that not because it's good for us, but because the way in which financial institutions make money is the extension of credit and then the carving up and packaging and selling of that debt. And the reality is debt is dangerous. I mean, it can help you as long as you understand what it is and keep it in a very limited quantity. But the less debt you have, the more control you have over your own financial future. And our world is awash in marketing slogans that will push you to do the opposite. A hundred percent. Bethany, thank you so much. The book is called The Big Fail, What the Pandemic Revealed About Who America Protects and Who It Leaves Behind. It is a must-read, another must-read from Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me on. And we are going to take a quick break. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobier. I'm the co-host of Mind Shift. 
the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia Chatsky, is joining me. So, Jules, with two weeks left to go before Christmas, are you done with your shopping? Started with your shopping? Not shopping at all this year because you're trying to save money? Well, I've seen a few things this year. So, like, I picked out a coffee table book that I thought Adam wouldn't be opposed to if we had it in the apartment. So that was like, oh, this is a Hanukkah gift for him. But it's, you know. For you. No, it's for him. He'll find it interesting. It's about, like, the history of watches. He'll think that's cool. I'm partial, but I'm also always a staller. And then, like, yeah, I'll get you something when I find something better. What about you? No, I've been delaying. I've really been sitting on it. and. I am seriously in trouble, so let's dive into our mailbag so that maybe I can go shopping. All right. Where are you going? You need a gift for me? I always need a gift for you. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Lynn. She writes, Hi, Jean. I've loved the podcast for a while now, and I appreciate the sound advice you give. Now, I have a question about the change to come in 2026 on estate tax. I am both durable and medical power of attorney for my stepmom and co-trustee of her sizable revocable trust. The current value is about $9 million. She lives in Arizona and I live in Colorado, but I make frequent visits to check on her. She is 81 and I have every expectation of her living several more years. Right now, the estate tax exemption is about $12 million, but it's set to drop to about $6 million in 2026. My question is, what action should I be taking now on her behalf to protect her beneficiaries from losing 40% of their inheritance once we're in 2026 and she's still living? She is not financially aware or interested, but I do want to do my fiduciary duty to both her and her named beneficiaries. Her beneficiaries are several charities and a few friends. There is already a donor-advised fund in place to make annual donations to the charities, plus a lump sum when she passes. Should I start moving assets out of her trust now in the forms of gifts slash donations? Should I set up an irrevocable trust for her? Right now, she lives in her home with a nurse three days a week, but an assisted living facility could be in her future. Her bills, including the nurse, are about $5,500 a month. I know I basically have two years to figure this out, but I want to be confident in the plan when the exemption amount drops. Thank you for all you do. So, Lynn, it's a really good question. Estate tax and the estate tax exemption is on a lot of people's mind these days because basically what this means, and your reaction was not unusual, $9 million is a whole lot of money. And you want as little of it as possible to go to Uncle Sam in the form of taxes. So taking steps to minimize that is a really smart move. The estate tax exemption is the amount of money that any individual is allowed to pass on either during life or at death. The current estate tax exemption 
is closer to 13 million right now. So it has actually gone up. But you're right, the tax laws are set to expire and it's expected to be halved by 2026 if the government does nothing. Now, the government may do something. The first thing that you want to do is just keep your eye on what happens. This may change. The government may decide that they're going to keep it where it is or that they're going to inflate it a bit. But you can't plan for that. And so what I would do now is make two appointments. Make one appointment with a financial advisor and make another appointment with an estate planning attorney. And here's why you have to see both. What you don't want to do is rob this woman of her quality of life in any way. And although 81 sounds like it's getting up there, people these days are living another 20 years at 81. And depending on the level of care that she needs, that may cost quite a bit of money. So you want to ballpark how much money that is likely to be, particularly if she goes into assisted living or needs more care than she's receiving today. You want to look at how fast her portfolio is growing and you want to look at what the difference is, how much of that money is truly excess. Then you can talk to an estate planning attorney about the right way to start moving some money out of the estate. My personal bias is to start slower and then speed up perhaps down the road. Look at things like annual gifting. Look at accelerating charitable donations. There are charitable trusts that you can establish where your stepmother is able to live on the money in the trust today and the money that it spills off doesn't get added to her estate, but rather it goes to the charity. There are also charitable trusts that do the reverse. She lives off essentially the interest and the principal will essentially eventually flow to the charity. But as I said, not a lawyer, not an accountant. And so you're going to need to really talk to an expert, an estate planning attorney, and a financial advisor to help you run the numbers and figure out exactly what to do. What you're doing correctly is thinking about this in advance. A lot of people don't have the level of foresight that you seem to have. And so as a result, they just dig their heels in, they let time lapse, and then they worry and wonder when it's really too late. So she's lucky to have you. You've got a lot of options. Make the two appointments and let me know what happens. We've got one more question, Jules. All right, let's get into it. Our next question comes from Barbara. She writes, hi, Jean and the Her Money crew. Sadly, I have three high-interest credit cards with a total balance of all three at about 11000 Is it worth it to transfer these balances to a zero-interest credit card with Ally if I'm planning to pay it all off within 12 months? Short answer, Barbara, yes. Yes. And here's why. I, I did the math. If you are paying interest on that $11,000 at, say, 
And that would not be unreasonable right now because many credit cards are charging even more than that. They're charging 25% or 29%. But let's say you're paying interest on that $11,000 of 20%. It's going to cost you over $2,000 to pay off that debt over the course of the year. If you transfer those balances to a 0% credit card, and then you get rid of all of that debt with inside that 12 months, and you've got a 12-month teaser period at that 0% rate, you're saving yourself $2,000. Now, there will likely be a transfer fee. Most of these programs have a transfer fee of 3%. So transferring the balance is going to cost you about $330, But when you're comparing the difference, $2,000 is a lot more than $330. So I'd go ahead. I would make the balance transfer. I would pay off those cards at 0%. And then I would ask yourself the question, what happened to me? Why did I get into this much high interest rate credit card debt? And what do I have to do so that it doesn't happen again? Make sense? Yeah, definitely. Sometimes, Jules, it's just math. That's why we keep you around, Mom. (laughs) Thank you for being here, Jules. Thanks for having me. And we are going to take a quick break. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with your money tip of the week. Set it and forget it. That's the money mantra that many of us use to manage our credit card payments. You log in, set up auto pay, and you're done. This saves you money by helping you avoid late fees, right? Wrong, actually. In theory, higher auto pay enrollment should lead to reduced credit card fees. Yet, according to some new federal data, the total fees and interest paid by cardholders rose 19% from 2015 to 2020. So what's going on? When you set up auto pay for your credit card bills, you are given three options paying in full, paying a set amount, or paying the minimum. For many people, paying in full every month is unsustainable. And when you opt for the minimum payment, you tend to keep things as is. That's where the problem lies. Paying your balance in full is the only way to avoid interest when you're using auto pay. Paying your balance in full is really the only way to avoid interest when you're using auto pay. If you don't check that box because you think that you're not going to have the money in your account when the day to pay your bill comes around, the thing to do is to schedule your payments for the days you get paid instead of the days set by the credit card company. They're very happy to do that. And if that's still not working for you, try paying the old school way, manually. A bonus, actively managing your account helps you stay on top of your spending and spot any fraudulent charges. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you so much to Bethany McLean for discussing what we learned from the pandemic and where we should go from here. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It with Karen Feinerman, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Music